As far back as the 9th century, when Scheherazade told the tales of 1001 Nights, authors have been doing it. And Jan van Eyck was one of the first painters to do it when, in 1434, he unveiled his masterpiece, The Arnolfini Wedding. I'm talking about telling stories about telling stories and painting paintings about painting. In both cases, the practice invites the creator to examine not just the nature and function of their art, but also examine their position within it. And while Hollywood loves to make films about making films, most of the time, the only thing the studio presents is a celebratory parade that masks a narcissism that unfortunately goes hand in hand with the neurotic Beverly Hills. There are, however, a handful of films that go beyond the surface of the silver screen. Take a cold, hard look in the mirror and admit that yes, the myth-making factory panders to its own insatiable ego and its idealized image of itself more than it does reflect on its true nature and proper function. But what about the films that do something else? One of the best is one of the earliest and dates from the silent era. Buster Keaton made Sherlock Jr. in 1924 and in it he played a cinema projectionist who dreams himself up onto the silver screen in order to solve a mysterious theft and win the heart of the girl he loves. A wonderfully inventive story, it's quite obvious it takes its cue from the emotions felt by audiences when watching a film. Four years later, Keaton examined film from the other side of the camera with the aptly titled The Cameraman, in which he played a stills photographer in New York who was enamored with a secretary who works for the MGM newsreel division. In order to catch her attention, he acquires a film camera and goes to work for the studio. So it's a romance, but it also gives an early glimpse to audiences as to the mechanics of filmmaking itself. There are plenty of musicals from the 1930s that go behind the scenes of making movies to underline the illusion-reality divide that so typifies so many examples of the subgenre. But for the most part, those films don't examine the distinction instead blurring the lines to make everything part of the one big play. However, in 1941, writer-director Preston Sturgis gave us Sullivan's Travels, about John L. Sullivan, a successful Hollywood director who was tired of serving up the same fodder to the masses. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? They died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. So he writes a script called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yes, that's where the Coens got the title for their parody of Homer's Odyssey. Anyway, back to Sullivan's travels. When the studio balks at Sully's pretentious, highfalutin ideals, he decides to embark on a cross-country odyssey himself to get in touch with his audience. What he learns is that they just want to laugh, and warm as Sturgis's satire is, 
it pours scorn on filmmakers who undervalue the importance of entertainment. That was the 40s. The 1950s started with Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, a movie that drips with so much jet black and bitter coffee, it would keep you up for days just wondering what on earth possessed Wilder to present such an attack on his profession. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Joe Gillis is a struggling screenwriter who unwittingly stumbles into the mansion and life of faded silent movie star Norma Desmond. Gillis is in debt, so he decides to assist Desmond in her efforts to mount a comeback. But again, he fails to see that he is being drawn into her world of fantasy and fatal self-delusion. Wilder peppered his films with actors from old Hollywood, beginning with Gloria Swanson as Norman Desmond. But the most telling and tragic of appearances was Eric von Stroheim, who played Norma's butler and chauffeur Max. In the movie, it transpires that Max was once a successful film director who had directed Desmond to her greatest triumphs. In reality, that's exactly the way it was, as von Stroheim had, in 1929, directed Gloria Swanson in Queen Kelly. So acerbic and arsenic-laced is Wilder's assault on the industry. It is rumoured that when the head of MGM Studios, Louis B. Mayer, saw the film, he lambasted Wilder, saying, you have disgraced the industry that made you and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. Much lighter in tone, but no less important, is the perennial musical favourite I'm singing in the rain Just singing in the rain What a glorious feel And I'm happy again Co-directed by Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly, it focuses on Hollywood in the late 1920s when the industry was making the switch from silent pictures to talkies. While you might be tempted to dismiss the film as shallow because it's a musical, that would completely overlook the subtle but consistent manner in which the story lays bare and then blurs the distinction between appearance and reality. Nowhere is that blurring more evident than when Kathy, played by Debbie Reynolds, goes to dub the voice of Lena Lamont, played by Gene Hagen. But when it came to two of the songs in the film, Would You and You Are My Lucky Star, Reynolds was herself dubbed by Betty Noyes, a singer of considerable talent who nonetheless gave her voice uncredited to other films, most notably Dumbo and the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I'm singing and dancing in For the 60s and 70s, we cross to Europe, where the focus shifts away from the actors to the directors. And it is for many directors that Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half stands as the greatest of all movies about movie making. 
Fellini was coming off the back of the enormously controversial and even more monstrously successful La Dolce Vita. Understandably, Fellini was struck with creative inertia. We must remember that Fellini began his career collaborating with Roberto Rossellini on Rome Open City and Paysan, two films that cogently addressed the reality of life in post-war Europe, a war that had almost wrought asunder Western civilization. Western filmmakers were asking themselves a question they had never needed to address. What is the function of our art? Fellini had sought an answer, and in making Eight and a Half, he asked himself another question. What is my position in art? Laced with lush memories and bawdy, outrageous fantasies, Fellini's film is as much about a movie being made as it is about a movie being unmade, as all his indulgences and extravagances only deepen his creative and spiritual crisis. Likewise, in the same year, French director and polemicist Jean-Luc Godard ponders the position of art in a culture that seems to hold it in complete disdain. In fact, his film, Le Mépris, translates as contempt. If filmmakers go with eight and a half, film critics seem to prefer Le Mépris. Every line of dialogue and every single frame of this film come layered with layers of meaning and illusions. Although having a mere handful of characters, it was nonetheless shot in cinemascope, a format more often used for grand epics. But that's just one of the juicy points Goddard makes in his film about a scriptwriter torn between the demands of an aging and legendary director, played by aging and legendary director Fritz Lang, and a tyrannical and crass Hollywood producer, played by Hollywood actor Jack Palance. Then, there is the producer's sexpot wife, played by sexpot Brigitte Bardot, who finds herself drawn into an affair with the screenwriter. When he started out making movies in the 50s, Godard was great friends and a collaborator with Francois Truffaut. But by the 70s, Godard had nothing but, wait for it, contempt for Truffaut, especially after Truffaut made his own film about making movies, Day for Night. Rather than being a bitter pill, Truffaut's picture is a valentine to movie making, as he celebrates the craftsmanship and deep love that can go into even the most conventional of dramas. Here, everyone is deeply in love either with someone else, themselves, or as Truffaut was, cinema. Quiet on the set. A very sophisticated mixture of scorn and understanding is to be found in Robert Altman's The Player. Yet, if ever there was a director who could feel entitled to delivering a smart smack to the studios, it would have been Altman. However, he was far too intelligent a filmmaker to place all the responsibilities with the suits. The audience gets a fair share of the blame as indeed does the director. Working from Michael Tolkien's novel and screenplay, Altman called in a whole host of Hollywood talent to play themselves and still had fun delivering a plot where a studio executive may be the killer, but it's the struggling screenwriter who ends up dead. 
So what's the story? 25 words or less. Okay. Movie exec calls Ryder. Ryder's girlfriend says he's at the movies. Exec goes to the movies, meets Ryder, drinks with Ryder. Ryder gets conked and dies in four inches of dirty water. Movie exec is in deep shit. What do you think? That's more than 25 words. Which, it must be said, is little better than where poor old Barton Fink ends up. Sorry if I let you down. You didn't let me down, Fink, or even low. We don't live or die by what you scribble. You let Ben Geisler down. He liked you, trusted you. That's why he's gone. He's fired. That man had a heart as big as the all outdoors, and you fucked him. He tried to convince me to fire you, too, but no, that'd be too easy. No. You're under contract. You're going to stay that way. Anything you write is going to be the property of Capital Pictures, and Capital Pictures is not going to produce anything you write. Not until you grow up a little. Most recently, we've had Saving Mr. Banks, in which Walt Disney prizes away from author P.L. Travers her beloved creation, Mary Poppins. It's a throwback to the old days, where the studio and all its muscle is considered a benign, liberating force. Of which the same can be said, only in a more literal sense, for Ben Affleck's Oscar-winning picture, Argo. Only there, both the studio and the film that helped rescue the American hostages from Iran were completely fake. Which perhaps shows that filmmakers are at their best when pretending to be other people.